Who do you think you are? How would you describe yourself? How would you define yourself? How would you categorise yourself? The other day I filled in a survey down at the town library and the first four questions all categorised me, at least in terms of how the library now thinks of me. Uh, Question one, how often do you visit the library? That's fair enough. Question two, are you male or female? Didn't mind answering that. Didn't have to think too hard. Question three got a bit tricky. Age. (laughs) Felt a little bit depressed about that one because I had to tick a box that said 50 to 65. I couldn't even write down that I was only just in the 50 to 65 box. Question four, job. Again, it's an awkward one because surveys like this, you know, they always list all these jobs, all these professions, all these trades. Church pastor is never one of them. So you've always got to tick the box that is other. Exactly. Four questions in. I'm not feeling all that good about myself. I'm an old man with a weird job who sporadically visits the library. I was just relieved they didn't ask me about my height-weight ratio, otherwise it'd be really... But that's the thing about the world, isn't it? The world is always giving us categories in which to pigeonhole ourselves. Are you married? Are you single? Do you own a house? Do you rent? Are you employed? Are you unemployed? Are you in this tax bracket or that tax bracket? Are you a baby boomer? Are you Generation X or Generation Y or Generation... Are Are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? Are you Mac or PC? Holden, Ford. If you're at school, are you a nerd or a computer geek or a jock or a goth or an emo or a plastic? Who do you think you are? Because the world has no shortage of categories to help us answer that question. Which is why 1 Peter is a great little part of the Bible because in 1 Peter God gives us the sort of categories that he wants us to think of ourselves in. I mean, that's one of the really characteristic things you notice about 1 Peter. If you sit down and just read the whole thing, you'll be struck by the sheer number of different word pictures and images and titles that are used to describe just who you are when you're a follower of Jesus. Who do you think you are? 1 Peter's got some really lovely stuff to say to us, especially so today's reading, chapter 1 a chapter that's full of very big ideas and so this Bible talk might be quite frustrating for you because we're really only going to skate the surface. We're going to sort of look at the forest. We're going to have to rush past some very nice looking trees but we just want to take in the forest this morning after this chapter and uh, so you might like to go home and reread it after we've thought about it. But it's a section that basically moves from telling us to know who we are to be who we are. Firstly, it kicks off with a description of knowing who we are. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's who's writing the letter, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Peter's writing to Christians who are spread out through a region which pretty much corresponds to modern-day Turkey. What's interesting, though, in that opening verse is that he describes them as scattered strangers. Sounds as if these are people who, who don't fit in. They're scattered strangers. Society sounds like they've been rejected. They they don't belong. They're outcasts. They're they're square pegs in round holes. They're they're scattered strangers. They're they're nobodies living nowhere in particular. Sometimes it can feel like that as a Christian, can't it? You you had those times when you're in a group of people uh, and the conversation starts to get 
suggestive, vulgar, the dirty jokes start, or else the gossiping starts. People are really ripping into someone else behind their back. And you, you just start to feel awkward. And you feel out of place. You sort of don't want to be there because you're not into that sort of stuff because you follow Jesus. Maybe some of you know what it's like to be the only Christian in your family. You've got brothers and sisters, you've got a mum or dad, you've got children who love you, but they also think you're a little strange because you take Jesus so seriously. Following Jesus can certainly make us feel like a stranger in the world sometimes, but God wants us to know that we are far more than that. And so did you notice what Peter wrote before he even got to the strangers bit? He said, to God's elect, to those who are chosen, those who are chosen. You ever felt the disappointment of not being chosen? You know, you try out for the sporting team or you go for a part in a play, you don't get picked. You're looking for work. You get through the final round of interviews. You don't get picked. It's presentation night at school. The awards, the trophies, the certificates are all being given out. You don't get picked. It can be really depressing. Peter doesn't want his readers to feel like that regarding God. He wants them to know that even though the world might be overlooking them, they're scattered strangers, Even though they might be treated like that by the world, God has not overlooked them. Verse 2, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. In fact, verse 2, notice that all the people of the Trinity are are mentioned throughout there, aren't there? There's the foreknowledge of the Father, but there's also the sanctifying, that is the cleansing work of the Spirit. There's also sprinkling by Jesus' blood that gets mentioned. That's a phrase that picks up Old Testament language, all about a sacrifice involving blood that's needed to take away sin. So Father, Son, Spirit, they all get a Guernsey in that verse. They're all involved. And so it's not as if being chosen by God, you sort of get, you sneak in on a two-thirds majority. No, no, it's unanimous. Peter wants his readers to know that the whole Trinity has been involved in them being chosen. Now, I think for his original readers, that's quite a significant point. Uh, We'll come back to that next week as to why that might be the case. But, of course, what's true for the original readers of 1 Peter, it's also true for those of any of us who have turned to Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, you are one of God's chosen people. In fact, passages like John 10 make it even more up close and personal because Jesus says we get chosen by name. He knows us and calls us by name. And so it's not not even as if God says, you know, okay, I'm going to take this bunch. I'm going to take morning church. No, no, it's far more personal than that. The God of all the universe says, Sally, I've picked you. The God of all the universe says, Wes, I've picked you. The God of all the universe says, Patty, sitting up the back, Surrounded by lots of people, perhaps not thinking that she's noticed. I've noticed you and God says, I've picked you. Put your name in if you're a follower of Jesus. God of all the universe says, I've chosen you. It's a big thought. Mind you, it's not something to get a big head about. Um, It's not as if we can say, you know, oh boy, I must be pretty good. God God picked me. 
Now, no, verse 2 has reminded us that it's all about God's goodness, not us. It's reminded us that we need to be sanctified by the Spirit, that we need to be cleansed by uh, the sprinkled blood of Jesus' sacrificial death. Being God's elect is certainly not something to get conceited over, but 1 Peter certainly does want us to see that it is something to be comforted over. So too is the fact that we have new birth, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now, we often talk about, or we hear talked about, you know, born-again Christians. Don't let the familiarity of that phrase rob you of just how radical that is. How radical it is that as a follower of Jesus, you have been born into an entirely new life. That just like when we're born as a baby into this world, you know, when we're born, suddenly everything completely changes. We go from a a dark, small womb into a massive, bright world. That's the sort of level of change that happens to us when we follow Jesus. In spiritual terms, we've effectively burst into a whole new dimension of life, a massively bright dimension of life. uh, Peter describes it in verse 3 as having new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's speaking there about the resurrection life that we have to look forward to now as God's elect in the new creation. That come time, this world with all its imperfections, come time, it's all going to go and a whole new perfect world will be ushered in. And as God's chosen ones, you'll get to share in it. Don't be put off by the word hope there either. You know, we, we sort of use hope as a wishful thinking sort of, I hope the price of petrol comes down because that's just what we want to happen. The New Testament uses hope not for what we hope or not just what we'd like to happen. It uses it to describe what will happen because God has promised it. That's why Peter emphasises that this future inheritance that we have in the new creation is verse 4, can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last day. See, we have a reserved place in a perfect new creation and God, our refuge and strength, has promised to shield us until the day that we get to take our place in it. Now, there's a lot we could say about this. Uh, Peter actually goes on and says a a bit about it through to verse 9, pointing out how this sort of perspective uh, of being born into a living hope will help us in the trials and difficulties of this life. For the sake of time, uh, I want to jump those verses. We're going to come back to that sort of comforting thought in chapters 3 and 4. For now, though, it's, it's really more the big idea that I'd like us to take in. And the big idea of the chapter so far is... Who do you think you are? You're chosen by God. Who do you think you are? Well, you you are people with a really bright future in store for you. you. You have a part in a perfect new creation that's coming. That's who you are. You're also very privileged. Hope you realize that. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The, the coming new creation that we have a part in as God's chosen people. The, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. 
when they spoke of things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now that's a fascinating paragraph. It starts with a description of the Old Testament prophets as people who spoke about this glorious salvation that God has planned and yet at the same time, even though they spoke about it, they didn't quite fully get it. They couldn't fully work out exactly when and by whom this salvation was going to come into being. The section ends with even angels in heaven longing to gaze into the fulfilment of what it was that the prophets were talking about. And the point made in the middle of the paragraph is that it was all serving you. In other words, all the things spoken of the Old Testament, you know, all the predictions about the coming Christ, all the descriptions of the, the, the coming suffering servant, all the prophetic words about a new age to come, uh, all, the, all the predictions of a time when God would pour out his spirit onto his people, it was all spoken in a very real sense for you guys here this morning. Because it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. And what's more, you know that it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. Because you are those who have had the gospel preached to you. Friends, it's actually a breathtaking picture of how privileged you and I are in terms of what it is that God has actually revealed to us. That sitting here with our Bibles open this morning, we are better placed to know God. We are better able to appreciate the plans of God than ever Abraham was or Moses was. Or Elijah, as great as they were, we know stuff, heck, that even the angels of heaven wish they'd known. Who do you think you are? You're God's elect. You have an eternal life reserved for you in a coming new creation and you are so utterly privileged in what God has revealed to you that as you sit down and read your Old Testament, you actually understand it even better than the prophets who wrote it in the first place. That's who you are. Okay, sure, you can sometimes feel like a bit of a stranger. Forget that. You're chosen. You have new birth. So privileged. And look, if that was all that was in chapter 1, that would be more than enough. Peter presses on because he now wants to say, well, live it. Don't just know who you are, be who you are. And from verse 13 onwards, Peter starts to explain to his readers how to live out this extraordinary spiritual identity that we enjoy. And again, there's lots of very specific things said about being self-controlled and holy and pure and loving and putting aside certain things. As we take in the big flow of ideas, though, what I'd like you to notice is the way the whole section is wrapped around a backbone of family picture type words. For example, have a look at verse 14 with me. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Now I want you to notice the family image there. Verse 14 does not say, as obedient people, which would make sense. It doesn't say as obedient servants, which would make complete sense. It's, it's deliberately as obedient children. Uh, be holy as he is holy. In other words, you know, we've had this new birth that we've been told about in verse 3 into a new family where God's children, we have this whole new realm of existence, so be holy like God. Be so distinctively good that people will notice you because that's how good God is. Uh, well, you're his child, so share the family likeness. 
There's another family word picture that closely follows. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Here again, see, notice, Peter does not say that you call on a judge who judges each man's work impartially. That would make complete sense. He deliberately goes, we call on a father who judges all men. Again, it's a family-type picture of having a dad to whom we need to show respect, especially so because of all the effort he's gone to to, to get us into the family. Verse 18, 19, he points out that our, our salvation didn't come cheap. God's own precious son, nailed to a cross, left to die, so that we could be in the family, so that we could, we could call God dad. How insulting to not respect him for that. How, how exo- insulting to not acknowledge uh, and show him the reverence he deserves because of all that he's gone to, through. A third family image follows, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth that you, uh, so that you have severe, sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart, for you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Notice again, there's a repetition of being born again. Mention of having brothers now. Again, it's a family word type picture. Peter's reminding us of of our new birth into a family, God's family. And now the emphasis is on loving the others in the family. Not just respecting our new heavenly father, but also loving our newfound brothers and sisters in the room. Loving each other deeply from the heart. Here's a fourth and final family image in chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. See, we've, we've moved from being an obedient children to being reverent children to loving children. Now there's an emphasis on being growing children, craving spiritual milk, which I take it as a reference to, to the word of God. It's saying that you know when we crave God's Bible, when, when we're like a young child who's restless and unsatisfied unless we're fed, well, if we're restless and unsatisfied unless we're spending time in the Bible, well, when we're like that, we'll be growing as one of God's children. That's when we'll develop maturity. That's when we'll become more obedient as a child, more reverent as a child, more loving as a child. But what I want to notice in all of this is that there's this backbone of family-type language that everything is wrapped around, of being born, being a child, entering a family, having God as your dad, having others as brothers and sisters. And I'm thinking Peter is doing it this way because he does not want the second half of this chapter to come across as, you know, just a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. Don't do that. No, no, no. If I'm picking up the tone of the chapter correctly... Peter wants us to do all these things simply because of who you are. He's not laying a guilt trip on us to do this. He's actually wanting to excite us to do it because it's just who we are now. My folks have been not that well lately. I don't need a commandment to tell me to be concerned for them. I'm their son. It's just how it is. I think that's what Peter is doing here. He's just wanting to open our eyes to, do you realise who you are? Well, live it. I know I've told this incident before, and so forgive me if you've heard it, um, but I reckon it captures the chapter beautifully. 
It's an incident involving Queen Victoria, who um, has been the longest reigning British monarch. For 63 years she reigned what was then a very powerful British empire. One of the reasons that uh, she was queen for so long was because she came to the throne when she was only 18 years old. Uh, that was no surprise at the time because all the others in the royal family, because of their age or, or health, uh, it was pretty clear even when she was just a baby that Queen Victoria was going to become queen at a very early age. However, what they decided to do was to not tell Victoria that she was going to be queen at first. They kept it a secret from her until she was about 11 years old. And even then they didn't tell it to her straight. They let her discover it for herself in an English history lesson. The story goes that uh, this particular day they were working their way through a history textbook with her tutor and uh, Victoria discovered a page in the textbook which had been removed up until then but which they'd put back into the book. It was a page that listed the line of succession to the throne. And according to her biography, Victoria noticed with surprise that, hey, I've never seen this page before, and with even greater surprise she noticed that she was the next in line to the crown. Her tutor agreed, pointed out the obvious, that Victoria would one day be the queen of the then massive uh, British Empire. To which Victoria reportedly replied, then I will be good. Pretty remarkable thing for an 11-year-old girl to say. But you see what... See the tone? Having discovered who she really was, having realised her almost secret identity, an identity of incredible importance, amazing prestige, her response is, well, then I will be good. In other words, because of who I am, because of now I realise who I am, I will now behave appropriately. I will be good. That is 1 Peter chapter 1, 2RT. It's a chapter that as you read through it, you discover who you are, who you really are. Forget the categories that the world wants to put you in. As a follower of Jesus, you are chosen by God. As a follower of Jesus, you have been born anew. As a follower of Jesus, you are so privileged beyond belief as to what God has revealed to you. And therefore, Peter says, well, just live it. Maybe you need to expect more of yourself than you sometimes do because just open your eyes to who you are in Jesus and be it. Be who you are. Because I'm telling you, it is amazing who you are. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for broadening our horizons this morning from this wonderful chapter so that we look far beyond the categories that the world pigeonholes us with. Father, thank you that as followers of Jesus, you've chosen us, that you've given us a new birth into a radical, bright, new world. Father, thank you that we are so privileged in understanding who you are and the way that you have orchestrated your plans in history. Uh, Father, thank you that we just can understand your Bible better than the, even the writers of the Bible themselves seem to understand it. Father, these are extraordinary things. Thank you for reminding us of who we are in Jesus.
And Lord, we want to be who we are. So please help us. By your word and spirit, help us to live out the wonderful things that you've shown us today. Amen.